Welcome back to the Slava Connection. This is your host, Katya. Today, we have return guest, Dr. Susan Craig, on the show to talk about her research and travel in Siberia. This time, we focus on southeastern Siberia, specifically the Republic of Puva, which at the time of her travel in 1990 was still part of the Soviet Union. I hope you enjoy this episode. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome back, Dr. Crate. Thank you. It's nice uh, to see you again, although I, I see you every day. Yep. But how is your quarantine going? It's going very well. We have a huge garden, getting a lot done in the house. I think that's not different from a lot of people. And we're bonding. Yeah. And part of that bonding process is me nosing my way into your your adventures of the past. And so one of those is is your, your time in Tuva. And so I, I wanted you to share your story with us about how you got to Tuva. Was it anything like Ralph Layton and Richard Feynman's Tuva or Bust? For those of you who might not be familiar with this book, they had to go through all this red tape and it was really difficult for them as U.S. citizens to finally get visas to go to Tuva. And Richard Feynman's actually didn't make it to Tuva He unfortunately passed away, I think, a week before he was supposed to set out. But Ralph Layton, his good friend and his partner in this in this project, ended up going. And then Richard Layton's daughter went, I think, in 2009 as well. But so was it anything like that or? Well, no, it was nothing like that, because what happened actually was in 1989, I and a group of other Americans came to Ulan Ude, which is the capital of the Buryat Republic on Lake Baikal. We were the very first international group to fly in to the Ulan Ude airport. Up to that time, it had been closed. Long story short, uh, we were doing work on Lake Baikal. I was interested in learning about the Buryat songs and stories and traditions around the lake. The Buryat ethnographer I met in Ulan Ude, I expressed my desire to come and study with her and she invited me to Tuva. I had no idea what or where Tuva was, but being adventurous, I agreed. And a year later, I found myself flying into Kazil from Moscow. I was the capital of Tuva. Yeah, the capital of Tuva. Looking down and thinking, oh my gosh, I don't really know where I'm going or if these people who are supposed to meet me will show up. It all worked out. It was a very tumultuous time in in. Tuva, especially in Kazil, the capital. It was 1990, so there was a lot of unrest. Uh, there was a lot of shortages, especially of food. Okay, so not trying to make this too much about Tuva or Bust, but that book focused on, I think, this process of trying to get to Tuva, a very hard-to-reach destination in the middle of Asia, in kind of like almost the heart, I guess, kind of the periphery of the Soviet Union. So in the 70s and early 80s, it was, even then, it was like a really hard place to travel to. Um, and I have this, I was reading this article about Richard Layton in this New York Times article from 2013. And he said the whole Tuvan culture was disappearing because it was outmoded, shall we say, under the Soviet system. They were supposed to build a new modern Soviet man and therefore places like Tuva, which practices shamanism and Buddhism, were seen as backward. Did you see any... 
any of that when you were there in this, what you describe as a tumultuous period? I didn't really. What I saw in terms of understanding that it was tumultuous was that we landed at the airport. My colleagues who I had met in Ulan Uday did meet me there. We went back to the hotel. We rested. And while I rested, I heard the sounds of protests and yelling and screaming outside. And it was also very difficult to find food. We were really hungry on this trip. So that's that's kind of the, the effect that I felt. I didn't really look into it that much deeper. I knew it was a difficult time across the former Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So you only spent a couple of days in Kazil before moving on yes. to other areas? Correct. We spent... Two or three days in Kazil, visited the Minister of Culture, kind of did all the formal stuff we needed to do um, in that context, went to the museum, learned what we could there. And one of the people who had come from the Pedagogical Institute in Ulan Uday, where my main uh, contact also worked, this other woman was interested in the Russian old believers in Tuva. And since she wasn't really interested in the rest of the trip, we went there first. Mm-hmm. And she returned uh, to Ulanu Day after that. And that was an interesting journey. We hired a driver. We all piled into one of these Uazic vans. These are these sort of all-terrain vehicle Russian vans. and Which are like simultaneously, you don't think they're going to make it because they like rickety-crickety, but they're also very durable. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And we left Kazil at 9 in the morning and got there at 11 p.m. at night. And if you look on a map, it's not that far. We had to be on a mud, dirt roads. It was raining and it was sunny and we were in this deep forest. I remember a few times the van actually was almost on its side in the mud. But we had this amazing driver who was able to get us out. And then we got to a riverbank. We had to wait for these little motorboats to come and get us and bring us to this settlement. Had you encountered any other old believers in your trips prior? No, I had never. Actually, old believers aren't going to go out and go to a festival and sing. I mean, these were people kind of representing the culture, Mm -hmm. probably performers in a settlement. Did anything in particular strike you as... It was fascinating. I remember later, I think we were there for, well, we got there very late at night. We stayed for the next full day and we left the next morning because the sect that we were visiting were called Chasavenia and they don't really believe in hosting people. That was what I understood. I haven't done any follow-up research on this. But on top of that, they were in post, which means fast. So on top of it, you know, we were hoping that somebody would put us up and all that good stuff. And I think the first night we slept in the schoolhouse or something. And then maybe the second night we were hosted in somebody's house. It was just a very difficult time. They were very closed off. They didn't want any photographs or any recordings done. I mean, it's all understandable, and we respected their their desires. But into it a little bit, we met some people who were more open to us. They wanted to know about the United States. I told them what I could. 
And gradually they opened to us and they they sang some songs for us. Mm-hmm. And you'll know from this recording that, in fact, after we left Ujop and I was working with the woman who went there specifically for the Old Believers, and we were listening to the recordings and she was telling me about each one, she made the comment, the heaviness of the singing is exactly a reflection of their belief that life is no joy and it's all sin. And of course, they also were very adamant about telling us that this idea that this is the end of the world, these are the last days. So take a listen to this recording. So after the trip to Uro, well, we did make it back. It didn't take as long to get back as it did to get there, thank goodness. We were in Kazil for another day or two. The woman left who was interested in the old believers, and we then set out to go 400 kilometers or 240 miles to the other end of Tuva, to the settlement of Teli. And this is the Bai Taiginski Rion, Bai Taiga means Bagati or rich taiga. And the village that we stayed in, there were all kinds of cows, goats, sheep, yak, and a few horses. And it was still, of course, in 1990, there was still a Sophos there, a state farm, not in very good working order. We settled in, of course, and we worked, we worked exclusively with these people who were working at these settlements, houses of culture. And so this woman took us to meet with some people who sang these gorgeous songs. And my first impression when I heard the songs was that they fit perfectly in this landscape. So Tuva is all steppe, which of course, why did they call it by taiga? It's not taiga, but anyway, all of Tuva is steppe except for the, the northern eastern corner, which is a taiga region, the Tocha region, which we went to at the very end. So here we are in Tele, um, far western Tuva, and we heard these amazing songs. And in fact, they sang, one of the songs they sang was by Taiga. And so take a listen. song. It touches on this traditional reverence for mountain peaks that is really deeply embedded in Tuvan culture. That also reminds me of the former anthem of the Republic of Tuva, uh, speaking of taigas, the forest is full of pine nuts, which is an old Tuvan folk song. And in 2011, it was replaced by a new anthem called Men Tuva Men, I am Tuvan. All of these songs kind of have this shared thread of talking about one's environment, the animals that inhabit that environment, and the the plentifulness of the land. Yeah, another way that that is expressed 
are in these sacred sites that are everywhere, be it a high mountain pass, a natural spring, any place where people have a sense that there is a spirit. And these are called ovas, and they are actually common in many of the Mongol Buryat cultures. And the first time that we saw one, it was new for me. It was shortly outside of Kuzil as we came up a high road. And there was to the left just all these pieces of rags tied on to these poles and this pile of rocks. And we got out and I was told that this is believed to be a place where there's a spirit. So we stopped and we put some coins there, etc. So as an offering to kind of ensure that you had a good trip. Exactly. Right. Yeah. To the spirit owner. So what's interesting, though, too, is that in one of the places where we were, we met an elderly woman who was, as I wrote in my journal, was a gold mine. She knew all the rituals, the stories. Um, she wore her old costume, which was very unusual because most of the costumes that people were wearing were sort of appropriated for the Soviet period. They were made out of synthetic materials and they kind of looked like, you know. So like neo-traditional. Exactly. Kind of, yeah. Right. Anyway, so she uh, invited her to her brother's yurt. That was where we recorded that first song of the Bai Taiga, sitting in the yurt, which was wonderful. And then she took us out to a, a natural spring where there was an ova and she showed us the rituals there prayers that you would speak. She actually performed the ritual there, which is the next recording that you'll hear. I did not have a laptop. I don't even think I had a computer at that point in time. So I took journals, which is really fun because I've got a lot of drawings in them too. So here's a little passage from my journal. One of the grandmothers we worked with knows a lot about the traditional rituals, stories, etc. She agreed to take us out to an ova, an old place of a god, and show us how the rituals are done, and then to a yurt of her brother. Following our lunch and quick coffee break, we piled in the van and went out, not even a kilometer from town, to the ova, passing the dump, the cemetery, and up, up, up to a high mountain pass between the Rocky Mountains. Spectacular. View of the Bai Taiga, rich taiga, so glorious. The formations with snow on the top and the sky dazzling. The colors as clouds and clearings interchanged. The next event that took place in this same area, we stopped and spoke with some elderly women who were out with their herds. And one of the elderly women agreed to sing for us. I guess it's a singing event or to recite for us. 
these special songs that they use when the mother refuses its offspring. So if a sheep refuses to let its newborn lamb milk, or if a camel refuses to let its newborn milk, etc. So she did a whole series. I think we've got three different animals represented in this next recording. So have a listen to this. Well, of course, it's probably strange to some people who know about Tuva that we have not yet even mentioned throat singing or played any recordings of that. Of course, throat singing is one of the more spectacular and well-known aspects of Tuvan culture. When I was there in 1990, little was known about throat singing in the United States. It was really interesting for me to see how, right after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a flourishing of understanding and recordings of Tuvan throat singing in the United States and other parts of the world. Here's a little bit from my journal on that. I got my first full taste of throat singing today. It sounds like it hurts to do it. They played an instrument that looks a lot like a banjo. It is more or less played like the sound of a horse galloping across the taiga. Staying in the tradition of throat singing, the songs are a reflection of nature, love of homeland, pasture, family. Often they are written by the musician himself. The grandfather was a museum piece. What a face. He sat like a tired marionette and played his instrument. He builds them. He is a master builder. Unfortunately, he just took all his instruments to the competition in Kazil, and they are all there being sold. I was amazed at how these two instruments reminded me of our traditional fiddle and banjo. After lunch, we drove to a nearby village, Kazil Dong, which is Tuvan for Red Mountain, named so because in that area are several mountains of red-colored rock. We ventured there in hopes of visiting the master stoneworkers. So this is interesting, too, because they have a tradition of carving. There's a lot of these mountains have these soft stone deposits of different colors. This one I'm speaking of here is specifically a red stone. And they do these amazing carvings. Some of them are realistic. I've got a carving over there with two men in Badaba or in their traditional wrestling. And some of them are fantastical. So they're just out of the sort of imagination of the carver. But back to throat singing. We heard a lot of throat singing. I'd like to play you a few clips from that, but it's important to know. Well, when I was there, people were very adamant about how throat singing started in Tuva. We find throat singing also in Mongolia and several other places. Tuvans claim it as their own because they say there are five, five main styles 
and that diversity bolsters the fact that it started there. Before we listen to these, I just want to give a little background to the the workings of what throat, throat singing is. So throat singing is also called overtone singing, and it's practiced, like you said, in only a few parts uh, of the world, mostly in Asia. So when someone sings a note, the column of air in their throat vibrates that produces a fundamental tone. That's the note's basic pitch, right? And then there's a series of higher pitches, the overtones that they mix in there as well. In conventional singing, the overtones are largely inaudible. In throat singing, though, through careful manipulation of the mouth and the throat, a vocalist can render certain overtones audible, resulting in two, three, and even four pitches sounding at one time. And I I really like this description. I've properly sung Cuban throat singing or throat singing in general sounds as though the singer has ingested a set of bagpipes with a low drone and a high melody issuing simultaneously from the same mouth. That's great. That's perfect. There are five kinds of throat singing. This was explained to me early on in the trip. Chime is actually, probably if you've heard any throat singing, you've heard chime. It's basically the middle range, maybe a little higher than middle range. So most common. Like an alto. Yes. Sugut is the highest singing. Way, way, way up like a soprano. And we only recorded one man who could sing sugut. Kargara is low voice. Very low. It sounds like a bear. <sighs> then there's Borbang Nadir, which is like Sagit, but it's with a lot of vibration. So Sagit, the very highest singing, but with lots of vibration. And then the last one is Ezengalir, which is a variant of Hume, that most common sounding. So we recorded a lot of throat singing during this two-week trip in Tuva. And for the sake of time, I'd like to play one of those clips. And this is especially wonderful because it was a father and a son. And it's great because it shows how much the tradition is being passed on. And it also sounds wonderful. Really amazing. I can't believe what a 10 year old boy? Six year old. A six year old boy was yes. seeing that. That's fantastic. We also met one woman who knew how to sing, uh, which I was so excited. And to tell you the truth, I understood why only men sing it. No offense to women, but it's so primordial and deep and masculine. She learned how to throat sing because she's got three brothers. She had three brothers who throat mm-hmm. sang. Well, a couple of things that you've said have just brought one specific person to my mind, Kongaral Ondar, who unfortunately passed away in 2013. One article I was reading about him a while back said that he was like John F. Kennedy, Elvis Presley, and Michael Jordan all rolled into one. But for anyone who 
has heard of the documentary called Genghis Blues, which follows uh, American singer Paul Pena, who is blind, follows him um, and his journey getting into tooth and throat singing. So he heard it on the radio and was just completely captured by it. And then he really wanted to go to the straight to the source. So he ends up going to Cuba after teaching himself how to how to throat sing. And he ends up in a throat singing competition in Cuba. And one of the throat singers there happens to be Kongaral Ondar, who had won the, the competition a couple of years prior. But I really like Kongaral Ondar's story and how he got throat singing because he talks about how hard it was to grow up in Tuva in the Soviet Union. And he grew up in, in the steppes. His family had had sheep and, and cattle. And he also experienced a lot of hardships because his father was physically abusive. And he he described his childhood as, you know, if he were ever tending to the sheep and he would lose one, he he wouldn't opt to go home because he would face the wrath of his stepfather. He would either sleep in a haystack in negative 40 degrees weather, or he would go to his grandfather or his uncle's houses and take refuge there. And that's where he learned how to throat sing. Oh, wow. So a little story that I really like about Kongaral Ondar is that in 1994, he was performing for Yeltsin. And, you know, he's a small little man. And Yeltsin was pretty large, pretty burly. And after performing, the president, like, kind of lumbered over to him and, like, came up to Kongaral Ondar. And he was kind of scared. He was like, oh, my goodness, what's happening? But it turns out that Yeltsin just wanted to look inside his mouth because he was looking for some kind of hidden device in there because he couldn't believe that he was making these remarkable sounds <laughs> with, on his own, which That's I thought great. was really great. I love it. So I also wanted to read a little part of my journal. So this was when we were leaving. This morning was absolutely a dream. I had no plan to go running. But I woke up at 5.45 and looked out on the clear, crisp morning and then was inspired to run up to the Ova in the mountain to bid the Bai Taiga one last farewell. Such a soft morning, colors, not a soul in sight, but two or three folks. Out the dirt road, which for the first half appeared to be a town dump, the second half more or less clean. I ran and ran, a little slower as I reached the crest. I first stopped at the Ova, and tossed a 15 kopeck coin on it, then put a few rocks on it to build it up, as was the tradition. Then I went to the pass. What a view! The first rays of sun hitting the mountains. I stood there for a few minutes and attempted to sing a little, then just stood and soaked it all in. Wow! And in that moment, I promised to return. So after we were in Tele for a few days, we also traveled to Chedong, which is basically on the way back to in the direction of Kazil, towards the east. Among other things, we also recorded some hummus. Uh, they're very small, very delicate, um, but a master player can really do an amazing job. So take a listen to this next cut. So after we left, we came back to Kazil from Chidang, and 
We were there for a day or two, and then we set off for our last destination, which is actually the only taiga area, thick taiga forest. Our first stop was in a place called Green Lake, and we walked a long way. It was absolutely beautiful. Our first stop was a mineral spring. They told us it was a radon spring. Yeah, that's questionable, but we got there and there were people bathing in it. And because it was a spring, of course, it was completely decorated with colored rags as it was also in Ova, a sacred place. We were able to find an elderly man who knew some of the shamanic rituals, healing rituals. And so we ventured with him up to the top of a hill nearby the spring. He apologized for not having the proper clothes. He had a suit on. He uh, performed a healing ritual for us. So take a listen. We recorded a few other elders at Green Lake, and then our next stop was in the village of Yeo. And when we arrived there, they told us that all of the people we would want to record were in the taiga hunting caribou. But in the end, we did manage to track down one shaman, very elderly man who lived on the river road across from the Yenisee River. We waited for him. It took him a little while to show up, but it was well worth it. He sang for us the song that is sung uh, for the bear ceremony. And the bear ceremony is a very ancient ceremony going back to the time when people lived in caves and they hunted bears who also lived in caves. When a hunter found a bear sleeping in a cave during hibernation, he would make a cross with sticks and set it in the mouth of the cave. And this would mark the cave and let other hunters know that a hunter had already been there and would return. The hunter would go and gather six or seven more hunters. And when they returned, they would have spears and they would poke the bear so he would stand up and expose his belly. And then they would spear the heart. They would return with the bear and all would eat and they would dance in a circle and sing the song this elderly man sang for us. And this was their way of thanking the spirit of the bear through their song. <coughs> So you had this really incredible journey going all across Tuva. What like were some of the biggest impressions that Of course the richness of the culture, the capacity that the Tuvan people had despite Soviet propaganda. And I swore to go back. My story though shows that in a few years I went up to the Saha Republic where I I've been ever since. I long to go back to Tuva. I did go back very briefly a few years after that first trip, but I wasn't there long enough. It was during a Jews Harp Festival that was actually in Kazil. Another, of course, impression was that I wasn't there long enough. 
I mean, two weeks is no amount of time to get a full sense of what life is like, what people's lives are like, etc. And of course, as I already mentioned, it was interesting to come back to the States and then see the interest in throat singing just explode in this country and also to see the various uh, bands and ensembles come over from Tuba to perform here. It was very, very exciting and I'm so glad that people have recognized this incredible culture in the middle of Asia. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share this with us. I've really enjoyed talking to you and finding out more about what it, it was like. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can follow The Slavic Connection on Facebook at The Slavic Connection and on Instagram and Twitter at at Slav X Radio. And as always, hook em horns. Horns.